Well, hey, everybody, it's Kevin Stevenson with I Don't Care uh, with, yeah, me, Kevin Stevenson, here on Market Scale Radio. Uh, really, you know, we, we've had a run of really interesting guests, and I'm trying to keep it going here, and I, th- I think I've found one. Uh, this is Dr. Nadej Gunn. She is the uh, medical director and president of Impact Research Institute here in the great uh, city of Waco, Texas. And Dr. Gunn, welcome to I Don't Care. Thank you, Kevin. It's nice to be here. Hey, it's great to have you. Uh, so so tell, tell my folks a little bit about you and, and your specialty and how you decided to, to go into uh, uh, gastroenterology. Well, gastroenterology was a really easy choice because it's just one tube. You eat something and it makes its way out. So I figured it's real easy. But what really fascinates me the most is the liver. And I really dedicated most of my training to hepatology, which is the study of liver disease, okay. because the liver is just an amazing organ. It's the only organ in the body that you could cut in half and it can grow back in full size in about three months time. Okay. So for that reason, I thought, well, this is pretty incredible. And the work that we do in transplantation and replacing the liver is quite uh, amazing. And so that's why I I chose the the field in general. Okay. Okay. So, you know, you you chose the field and and then you decided, hey, let's let's start the research aspect. Talk talk a little bit about about, uh, Impact Research Institute and what you guys do. Okay. Well, Impact Research was actually... Uh, founded uh, last year, around July of 2021. And I think it was really a decision out of necessity. I was practicing in Austin, Texas as a clinical trialist for liver disease. And many patients from the 254 area code were traveling to Austin to receive scans of their liver and to receive some information about what options there were, especially in the area of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. That's a condition that affects 30% of Americans. And those who are diabetic are seven out of 10, I have a seven out of 10 time, a chance of having fatty liver as well. And so this is just a huge population of people that were traveling to Austin because they didn't have the ability to get the scan or even clinical trials for this condition in their areas. Okay. And so I decided it was time to kind of relocate and bring the technology here to Waco and uh, find the patients that could benefit. And so we spend a majority of our time outreaching to the community, health fairs, um, lunch and learns with the community providers, really educating on who's that fatty liver patient, what are the risk factors, how do we identify these patients in our practices, and then we bring them to our center and we scan them. We do a non-invasive, painless, quick evaluation and see if they have the disease. And if they do, then we invite them to maybe participate in a clinical trial because there are no treatments for fatty liver. Okay. Well, you just answered one of my one of my upcoming questions. So, so let's talk a little bit about you know what causes non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Well, the that answer is kind of a loaded one. We're, we're not exactly sure what it is. It's the single most. Um, pressing issue that causes it. But we do realize that it has to do a little bit with insulin resistance. So you'll find this in diabetic diabetics. Those who are overweight or obese have a tendency to deposit fat in the liver. And mm-hmm. the thing about the liver is it is a very lean organ. It's sexy slim. Oh, <laughs> it doesn't wow. love, it does not like fat at all. It only takes what percent of fat cells need to be inundating the liver for the liver to get irritated. What would you guess? Oh my gosh, probably 
you know, being the non-clinician, I'm going to throw out 10%. How's that? 10%? That's pretty good, but it's it's 5%. Oh, okay. So when the liver is affect, uh, inundated with over 5% of its cells or fatty uh, cells, it gets irritated. And then that leads to a cascade of inflammation. And the liver tries to protect itself by laying scar tissue down. Oh. And by doing so, it kind of hurts itself. And that's yeah. what we des- describe as fibrosis, which then leads to cirrhosis. That's the term that people often think yeah. is associated with alcoholism, but it's not necessarily. You can get cirrhosis from non-alcoholic reasons or hepatitis for that for that matter. So it's kind of an uh, interesting condition because it's the least suspecting that gets this disease. Just yeah. enjoying life in Texas almost puts you at risk. This is the tortilla capital. Yeah. <laughs> and so... <laughs> And Dr. Gunn, you're 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 about to you're about to go from preaching to meddling because I know you're gonna start talking about barbecue and chicken fried steak. And, right? You chicken know, fried steak is a thing, isn't it? Here. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a little bit of chicken fried steak here in Waco for sure. So, so okay. What are the symptoms? How would I know that I have it? That's a great question, Kevin. Because most of the time, it's completely asymptomatic, meaning you don't feel yeah. anything. It is when the disease is progressing, when it's starting to really injure and harm the liver, that people might start firstly feeling fatigued. They might feel some pain in the right upper quadrant of their of their abdomen, of their belly. Um, and then when the disease really has gone haywire and now cirrhosis has developed, this is when you're talking jaundice, fluid yeah. accumulation in the, in the belly or the legs, confusion, bleeding from the gastrointestinal tract. All these really ugly things can happen when the liver has gone to the ultimate uh, level of scarring, which is the cirrhosis. Here's here's a crazy question. How many different research studies are you undergoing at the same time? Oh, we can easily be running 12 to 15 at the same time. Okay. Because fatty liver is such a dynamic condition. You have those who are very, very advanced who have cirrhosis. And then you have those who are still early in the disease who just have a little bit of fat, maybe very limited or early scarring. And so in order to satisfy all those different populations, we have to offer a array of studies. And the other thing is clinical trials are variable in length. They're also variable in mechanism of action. So you want to be able to approach a patient with the drug that will make the best benefit in them. Also, if a patient doesn't want to do an injection, you're not going to give that patient an injection. You'll give them a pill. Or if they want to do a pill, maybe you give them a liquid formula. So we have a lot of different options because we have to uh, really cater to the patient preference. Okay. Well, so so you're talking about injections and pills, but I, but I thought I heard you say there's really no cure for it. So so what are you doing? You know, what are these injections, pills, medications? What are they doing to help slow down the advancement? Well, that's an, again, you're asking really great questions. I don't know. You must have did a little research before you. <laughs> you know, I, I'm doing this cold. I have oh, no nice. idea what I'm talking about. So. <laughs> Well, uh, so that so as far as mechanisms are concerned, so yes, you're absolutely right. There are no FDA approved treatments currently for the treatment of fatty liver disease. But what we do know is that when people lose weight, when people adopt healthy lifestyles, that really makes a difference in fatty liver. So many of the mechanisms that are being 
implemented or designed or in development right now are those that target weight loss, okay. those that target insulin resistance or some kind of diabetes um, uh, uh, mechanism. Also, we have some medications that affect the thyroid actually, because wow. we know that the thyroid is that is that uh, that gland that helps with metabolism, and there's a receptor as well on the liver, same as there's one in the gland in the neck that can help regulate the metabolism of the liver. So many scientists are coming to the table with very unique um, mechanisms in which they believe will help either reverse the fibrosis or defat the liver, get the fat out of there or yeah. reduce the inflammation. So several different ways in which it's being approached, but more importantly, if, if you're not interested in a clinical trial, if research kind of still bugs you a little bit, which we should talk about because there's a lot yeah, of myths about right. research, right. but if, if research does offer a little bit of hesitancy, we say lose weight. Really, if it's white, it ain't right. Bread, yeah. rice, pasta, tortilla, potato, cut them down. Kevin, stop. Why are you doing that? <laughs> you're meddling again. Yeah. Uh, hey. Well, okay, so so you know all of this, you know, you're talking about metabolic syndrome and all of that, and so so there is some hope for some of us who probably fall in your big category. And we're not going to go into Kevin's problem, but uh, so you, there is some a, a ability to to reverse the damage or just reserve, reverse the disease process or both. So the different mechanisms are trying to attack either everything or one of something, okay. whether it's to take the fat away, which will then decrease the likelihood of, a, of inflammation and developing fibrosis or scar, or only taking away the scar. So it depends on the drug, but they're all after something or most of the things that are huh. affecting the liver. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so let's, let's talk a little bit about research because you're right. A lot of people hear research. They're like, I don't want to be a guinea pig. You know, I don't want to, you know, what if I'm in there and and, and I'm actually getting a placebo and I'm wasting my time, which they're really not. But let's talk about that. I, I, the, the fact that you, you mentioned that I think is really important because clinical trials have been riddled with a lot of negativity, right? Because, oh my goodness, you're getting something that hasn't yet been approved or it hasn't been made available mainstream to know that it's safe. But one, COVID has really shed some light on clinical trials because had mm -hmm. it not been for those medical heroes, those people who stepped forward and allowed their bodies to right. be used, we wouldn't have this vaccine available today. But what I'd like to tell my patients when they present that concern is one, there are no treatments for your disease. Mm -hmm. So you are on placebo 100% if you're not in a trial. If you enroll in a trial, the likelihood that you'll get a medication that could work is high. Mm -hmm. The second thing is, it's not that these drugs aren't validated or rigorously studied before they enter the human body. There's a lot of research and development that goes before a drug can ever enter the human body. And when it does, we still have to regulate and monitor very closely. You're talking weekly, if not monthly visits with your doctor, you're getting labs and assessments very regularly, more so than you would in a non-research setting. Mm -hmm. So in that, in that vein, we are really looking at these patients so closely that it's really hard for us to say that it's unsafe because if there was something unsafe about it, we would recognize it pretty regularly yeah. quickly. Well, you know, uh, I was recently, you know, I, I've kind of stayed away from the whole research thing because, you know, that 
thank thank goodness for people like you who love it. That's just not my thing. But I did have to do a little bit of research uh, uh, a few months ago, and I found that the level of of regulation by the federal government is really incredible. Can you talk a little bit about you know? Uh, and again, I'm, I'm way over my skis here, but like the institutional review board process and all of that, that really helps to to kind of make sure that research uh, research is as safe as it possibly can be. Right. So the FDA, before it'll approve any drug, has a series of uh, steps in which drugs have to go through before they can be ap- applied for approval. So there's the preclinical phase where the drugs are being looked at in more animal models and um uh, chemically induced models to uh-huh. see just if it works or if it meets the uh, endpoint that we're looking for. Then clinical, which is the type of research that we do, okay. that's now involving human subjects. And it starts at phase one. Phase one is safety. This is where you have a molecule. You, don't, you, you know it might work because you've done animal testing on it, but now you want to make sure it's safe in the human body. And that's very calculated studies. They're usually done in an inpatient setting. The patients can't leave. They're constantly getting their an EKG blood drawn and monitored very, very closely. Once that drug passes phase one, then you go to phase two and three. Two and three is safety and efficacy. So we've already proven it safe in phase one, but two and three, we're still looking at safety, but more so efficacy. Is it okay. really moving the needle? Is it really making the difference that we expect? Yeah. And at phase three is when the drug can now be approved and applied for approval to the FDA. The IRB, which is the Institutional uh, Review Board, this is the agency that was developed to ensure patients are safe, to ensure patients have a voice in research. So one, when a patient signs a consent to be a part of a trial, they are made aware that they are volunteers and that they can leave the study at any time. They also know that they, the IRB has their back. So if they ever have a question or they feel like something's unjust or unfair, the IRB is there to protect the rights of human subjects right. and ensure that we're doing everything out of beneficence and doing no harm to, to patients. Uh-huh. So it's really nice that the FDA and the IRB work hand in hand to ensure that this is safe and the protocols are being adhered to. But on the flip side, the patient is first and foremost, a priority. Yeah. You know, I think if more people knew that, and thanks so much for talking about that, because again, I didn't know the level of, of regulation on, on research until just a few months ago. Yes. And, and so I think if more, if more patients or potential research subjects knew that, I think they would certainly alleviate any fears that they may have. Absolutely. So, yeah. The IRB goes so far as to ensure if we make even one change in the consent form that the patient signs, the IRB has to approve that before it's made public for anyone. So it's very regulated. In fact, very ultimate, like ultra regulated to the point that we sometimes have to stop and wait for these approvals yeah. to, to happen before we can move forward. Yeah. Well, very good. So, so. Okay, so if if I'm interested in, in joining, you know, one of your your research uh, studies, how do I go about that? How am I qualified? You know, talk talk to us a little bit about that. Well, typically, um, either your provider, your physician, might refer you for an evaluation, 
or if you're just interested on your own, you can call or uh, sign up on our web our website to be evaluated. And we bring everyone in for what we call a fibro scan. Mm. That is a technology that was originally identified in cheese. So the cheese farmers wanted to know if the cheese had set on the inside. Okay. <laughs> right. They didn't want to cut through the product because then they can't sell it. So they right. want to ensure- And I don't want you cutting through my liver, so- That's right, exactly. So a little vibration travels across the tissue and it can tell us if the, the inside is soft or hard. Okay. And that's the same technology we use in the liver. It's really quick, painless, and simple. The patient lays ah. on their back. We apply the probe right between their ribs and then they feel a vibration travel across. If okay. the vibration travels fast, that means the liver is hard. If it's slow, that means the liver is soft, like it should be. Mm -hmm. So if we find that the patient has a stiffened liver and we also see that there's fat in the liver, then we will identify a clinical trial that might be appropriate for them. Huh. Or if they're not interested in research, then we just send that information to their referring provider or let them keep that for their record. And they're always welcome to come back and rescreen um, to just check on how the liver is doing. Sure. Okay. So, so you conducted all of this research, any real success stories so far? Oh, absolutely. Um, actually, June 9th is International NASH Day. NASH is non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. That is the medical term for the condition of fatty liver gone bad. <laughs> and it is, it's NASH. So fatty liver gone bad. Fatty liver gone bad is NASH. Though, shouldn't it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so on June 9th is International NASH Day. And, and unfortunately, NASH can affect young, young people as well as older people. Yeah. And we, we have a, a gentleman here that's in one of our studies who has lost an incredible amount of weight after starting the study. He feels great, super motivated, really excited about being in the trial. And so he's one of our success stories. He's only 28 years old. Oh, wow. And he had stage three fibrosis, meaning that on a scale of zero, meaning no scar, mm -hmm. and four, meaning cirrhosis. He was at a three and at 28 years old. 28. So I know. So he's a he's a success story. And actually, the clinical trial sponsor has invited him to speak to the organization and on, on behalf of International Nash Day to, to speak on it, because that's such a story. It's so incredible. Yeah, that's just incredible. To see. Right. I can't wait to see what his liver biopsy is going to show at the end. Yeah. That That's really, really interesting. So. Oh gosh, I've gone through a lot of my questions now. So, uh, so, so, what's next for you? I mean, are you, you know, you're you're going to get you're going to get non-alcoholic fatty liver taken care of. What's the, you know, what's what else is in the liver that you need to that you want to that you want to study? Well, so there's so many things that can affect the liver. Cirrhosis is still a yeah. unmet need. I and mean, when the liver gets there, we have nothing but transplant. Uh -huh. So I definitely want to see what's coming down the pipe to help with cirrhosis and offer mm -hmm. trials there. But we also have to look at what our patients are made of. So NASH patients are not just liver disease patients. They're mm -hmm. obese. They're diabetic. They have high blood pressure, high cholesterol. So if we can help them in any way there, we would certainly be open to it. And uh, also as an internist that I am as well, if there's something that I can help patients with outside of the liver, I'm always open to that as well. But I think we have a long way with fatty liver. I think NASH is gonna be on our minds for some time, Yeah. but I think we're also gonna need to, to address obesity, which is probably not going anywhere anytime soon. 
Yeah, you know, going back to that chicken fried and barbecue. It's not that's right. Anywhere, you know, particularly here in Central Texas, that's for sure. Yeah. So, so we've talked about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, but are there clinical trials on alcoholic fatty liver disease? Well, there are, but not as many. I, because the thing about alcohol is that if you remove the alcohol, you, yeah. re- you remove the liver disease. Yeah. So then at the end of the day, should we really be doing studies in addiction and in substance use and overuse, mm-hmm. or is it really the liver that we're the most concerned yeah. about? So it's a fine line there, um, but we there are studies in alcoholic liver disease, but mostly geared towards cirrhosis and reversing the scar, okay. and lessening the, the need for transplantation, because right now transplantation in alcoholics is a really touchy situation. Gosh, some, yeah. centers, some centers will allow it, and then some centers are still implementing a sobriety rule and you can't drink for so many months before you'd be offered a transplant. Yeah. Since you mentioned, what'd you say? I I remember years ago with Mickey Mantle. Yes. That was a huge, uh, a huge issue whenever he got a liver transplant and, you know, had been a, unfortunately a lifelong alcoholic. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I, I think that was conducted in Dallas, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, there are centers that will that definitely will do it. They will offer uh, kind of in parallel a very rigorous uh, sobriety program and yeah. counseling and such. But since you bring it up, and I think we your your listeners deserve to hear this, how much alcohol is too much alcohol? Yeah. Right. COVID really brought alcohol to another level. We saw more. more no. We saw, more alcohol-related deaths and morbidity related to alcohol within yeah. the couple of years of COVID. Yeah. And we have a definition in mind. In a woman, drinking more than seven drinks a week is considered borderline excessive. Wow. Now, and a drink is a drink. That's a one and a half shot ounce shot of whiskey, a five ounce glass of wine, a 12 ounce can of beer. And for a man, would you be willing to guess how many drinks per week would then be considered okay now we need to be looking into concern <laughs> uh I, i'm gonna go on the high end and let's go 14 how's that very good absolutely oh. right you've been on you you're right on it yeah wow so, maybe so i men, know too much about that uh, yeah <laughs> you've been managing <laughs> but 14 is my limit 13's in <laughs> okay no <I'm> <laughs> It's okay. This is no judgment zone. No judgment. Hey, well, thank goodness for that. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. That's what those are the definitions that we use with our patients to say, okay. hey, you know, you can drink, you can enjoy a, a glass of wine here and there. But when you've crossed over seven or 14 sure. for female to male, respectively, now we're starting to think, okay, could this liver disease be alcohol yeah. versus non-alcohol or both? Yeah. Well, and, and you know, you you, you look at I guess you could you could walk that fine line between both because you know obviously we were talking about alcoholism as an addiction you know it's as my dear mother used to say hey it's self inflicted well you look at the non fatty liver disease it's primarily obese primarily diabetic you know there's a lot of self inflicted in there too yes and absolutely so, and, yeah. and and your sentiment is well taken and one that has been looked at quite rigorously too because we have to work on. Uh, the diet and wh- and why yeah. people are motivated to eat as much as they do. Why do we overeat so much as a as a nation? So, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so so how do folks uh, get more information about Impact Research Institute and you 
And if they're interested in a clinical trial, uh, either, you know, how do they do that? Well, they can visit our website anytime, impactresearchtx.com. We have a web form where they can put their information and we'll contact them uh, same day or next day. They can call us at 254-294-4780, or they can just have their primary or provider send us a referral uh, just as easily. So um, they have full access, or they can just walk in and say hello and get scheduled. As long as they're fasting for a few hours, we can do a walk-in appointment so they can get uh, their livers checked. Okay. Well, that's great. Any last words before we go? Well, I want to thank you so much for inviting me. I think this is a great platform and I hope that uh, we touch some patients or people that are watching. Well, I hope so too. Dr. Nadej Gunn, the medical director and president of Impact Research Institute here in Jerusalem on the Brazos, Waco, Texas. Uh, uh, Dr. Gunn, thanks so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Kevin. Have a great evening. Thank you, too. Okay. So yet another episode of I Don't Care with me, Kevin Stevenson. So happy that you joined us today. Uh, you know how to find us, MarketScale Radio, MarketScale.com, uh, Spotify, iTunes. We're still there. So uh, I'll, I'll end this one like I haven't in a while. You know, if you haven't subscribed to I Don't Care with Kevin Stevenson, uh, why not? So with that, we'll talk to you next week. Take care.